an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Um, it's a great honor to be uh, asked to respond to my esteemed former teacher, uh, Dr. Planiga. And I wish to uh, thank the sponsors and the other organizers of this conference for giving me this opportunity. Um, in his paper, Dr. Planiga gives an excellent overview of the usual arguments against Christian theism that arise or are thought to arise from modern natural sciences. Dr. Planiga concludes that none of these usual arguments do, in fact, present a serious challenge to Christian theism. And with that conclusion, I am in agreement. I would like to focus my remarks tonight on the final section of Dr. Plantiga's paper where he makes the provocative assertion that naturalism and evolution are incompatible with one another in the sense as he defined that it is uh, not rational to accept them both. This is a refined version of Plantiga's famous evolutionary argument against naturalism or EN. Okay, and if you look on the outline, you can see what I am pronouncing there, the acronym E-A-A-N. I'm not actually going to be uh, 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 reading through the outline that you have there. The outline is, is more or less just an abstract of uh, what I'm going to uh, say tonight. Um, but uh, yes, this is a refined version, as I said, of Plantinga's uh, evolutionary argument against naturalism. I first encountered uh, this argument uh, from the horse's mouth um, some 10 years ago, uh, although the horse was not as long in tooth as, uh, as he may be now. <laughs> so, uh, Dr. Planiga will appreciate the illusion. Um, uh, while I was uh, in my doctoral program at Notre Dame, uh, uh, in his uh, course on religion and science, Dr. Planiga uh, taught us the Ian argument and we discussed it there. And in the intervening years, uh, I've continued to give thought to this Ian argument, and I've presented it myself and discussed it with students on more than one occasion. Um, as Plantinga has explained, the Ian argument states that if evolution and naturalism are true, it is unlikely that our cognitive faculties are reliable. Why? Because our cognitive faculties have been shaped by the evolutionary process, which is concerned only with survival and not with truth. So although we can be confident our cognitive faculties are biologically adaptive, we cannot be sure that they accurately correspond to reality, which would be a matter of truth, of course. This gives us a reason to doubt the accuracy of all our beliefs, including the belief in evolution itself. Therefore, the conjunction of evolution and naturalism is epistemologically self-defeating. I agree that Ian is a valid argument. It is true that on the basis of naturalism and evolution, the probability of our mental states being reliable is very low. However, every time I have taught and discussed Ian myself in a classroom setting, I keep coming to the conclusion that it does not go far enough. I think there is an even deeper fundamental problem with the naturalistic materialist evolutionary worldview, which I will call NME, uh, that Ian begins to uncover. It is not simply that if naturalist materialist evolution or NME is true, our cognitive processes are likely to be uh, not likely to be reliable. It is that if NME is true, it is unlikely 
and inexplicable that we would have cognitive processes at all. Restated, if enemy is true, we would expect a world without creatures that have mental states. <clears throat> However, we do have a world with creatures that have mental states, unless you're Francis Crick and want to deny that, or Stephen Pinker does this as well, and Dawkins does this on occasion, denying the selfhood, denying the reality of the mind, etc. Um, therefore, it is unlikely that enemy is true. Uh, the presence of mental states uh, suggests that enemy is not, in fact, true. Now, this requires some explanation. First, we must recognize that, as Plantinga has stated, evolution is only concerned about survival. Secondly, we need to realize that evolution can only work on behavior. More accurately, natural selection can only reward adaptive behaviors and eliminate non-adaptive behaviors. Natural selection, so to speak, does not give a fig what any creature is thinking while it behaves or whether the creature is thinking at all while it behaves. Let's engage in a mental experiment to show that this is the case. Imagine that we designed a very sophisticated mechanical robot that was able to land on other planets, locate raw materials, refine those materials, build a factory from them, and proceed to build copies of itself. Suppose that we land that robot on a distant planet and let it get to work. Fifty years later, we return, and the experiment has been successful. The planet is teeming with copies of our original robot, all of them milling about in search of raw materials to make further copies of themselves. So, from an evolutionary perspective, these robots have been very successful. They have multiplied exceedingly. However, would the robots have developed sentience? Would they be aware of their own existence? Would they actually think, feel, write poetry? In a science fiction movie, maybe they would. But this is the real world, and we know that they would not. Although their behavior is adaptive and they have proliferated, they would not be one whit closer, pun intended, to actually having mental states. This is because mental states are irrelevant to survival and proliferation. Yet, according to public scientific discourse, all living creatures are essentially biotic robots. We ought to be able to proliferate, uh, and any living creature ought to be able to proliferate without being self-aware, without having a real mind. Now, mental states are invisible to evolution because evolution can only act on behavior. The only way mental states would become visible to evolution is if they actually affected behavior. And this is precisely the thing that most academics who hold to naturalist, materialist evolution or enemy vociferously deny. Enemy adherents generally deny that mental states have any influence on behavior because they intuitively sense that mental states are not material entities or, at the very least, are difficult to analyze as material entities. Therefore, mental states fit uncomfortably into a materialist worldview, and the materialists want to deny the full reality of mental states. However, if mental states actually influenced physical behavior, which is, uh, and, and physical behavior is an undeniably material event, then we would have the immaterial, affecting the material, 
which would present a serious challenge to materialism generally. Now to grasp the seriousness of this issue, it would be helpful to briefly review the mind-brain problem. Uh, as Dr. Plantinga pointed out, the brain and the mind are distinct. The brain is the physical organ in our head. Our mind is our first-person experience, roughly synonymous with consciousness or sentience. Brain states and mind states are quite different. For example, right now, if I look at the, uh, the folder I was given for the conference, I'm looking at a red object, and I am experiencing redness. Now, my experience of redness is a, a mental state. Uh, presumably, my mental state of redness cor correlates with some state of my brain. Light enters my eyes, sending signals to my brain, and there is a certain configuration of activated neurons in my brain that is giving rise to my experience of redness. Nonetheless, my brain state and my mind state, although they are no doubt correlated, are not the same thing. The physical state of my brain is something empirically observable. My neurons have mass and extension in space. Their activation could be detected presumably by a CAT scan. With sensitive enough instruments, other persons could observe my brain state and describe it mathematically in terms of space, time, and energy. However, my mental state of redness or the experience of redness is not empirically observable. My red experience has no mass and no extension at space. It cannot be seen by a third person, and I cannot communicate my experience to you. I can talk about it with words, but I cannot directly communicate the redness to your mind. And for this reason, for example, we cannot know for certain that each of us experience color in the same way. Blue to you may appear differently than blue to me, and we would never know because we'd always be communicating about the same word blue although having different experiences within our mind. Now, this inability to share our mental states uh, directly with each other is called restricted access, which is one of six properties of the mind that are generally given to distinguish the mind from material objects. And those other uh, properties are often given as intentionality, um, qualia, the persistence of self-identity, a property called incorrigibility, which we can't discuss, and free will. Um, and we don't have time to discuss all those different properties of the mind. However, we ought to be able to see the distinction between brain states and mental states. Now, what is the causal relationship between the two? Nearly everyone agrees that brain states sometimes, probably often, cause mental states. This is not controversial. The controversial question is, do mental states ever cause brain states and therefore behavior? There are two possible answers, yes or no. Here is where I believe adherents of enemy find themselves on the horns of a dilemma. Knowing that mental states do not at all lend themselves to being categorized as material or physical things as those terms are generally used. Okay, the instinct of those who adhere to NME is typically to deny that mental states affect brain states, uh, namely that the immaterial affects the material. Therefore, most NME thinkers, naturalist, materialist, evolutionist thinkers in the natural sciences are epiphenomenalists of some, of some sort 
They believe that mental states are epiphenomena of brain states, that is essentially harmless byproducts of the brain state that have no further role in the chain of cause and effect. In other words, most enemy thinkers want to say, uh, no, mental states never cause brain states and therefore do not actually cause behavior. Uh, Crick, Pinker, Dawkins would, would be in this camp, as well as many in the field of uh, uh, neuroscience. However, if, if this is the case, that mental states do not cause brain states, then mental states are completely invisible to evolution. Evolution then could not and did not shape our mental states. NME adherents find themselves in the position of being unable to invoke the only cosmic creative force they are willing to acknowledge, namely the evolutionary process, in order to explain the presence of the mind, which is, ironically, their only means of access to the data of the real world. Put more succinctly, atheist materialists wish to explain everything via evolution, but mental states cannot be explained by evolution. Nonetheless, the presence of our mental states are the only reason we know anything about the world at all. So evolution, therefore, would be able to explain everything about the universe except the fact that we know anything about the universe. On the other hand, if the adherents of NME respond, yes, mental states do affect brain states and therefore behavior, then it becomes possible for evolution to shape mental states by rewarding adaptive beliefs or cognitive processes, adaptive mental states that cause advantageous behavior, and by eliminating non-adaptive mental states which cause disadvantageous behavior. So evolution can now guide our mental states if mental states cause brain states. But we have to give up materialism. Since mental states cause brain states, we now have to acknowledge the real reality of mental states. We can't shuffle them off into some quasi-reality, some uh, illusory category, or some epiphenomenal category. Um, we can't dismiss them as harmless properties of physical objects. Mental states would be really real, yet they are not material objects, therefore materialism would be false. So, if materialism is true, then evolution has not shaped the mind. If evolution shaped the mind, then materialism is false. Therefore, materialism is not compatible with the evolutionary origin of the mind. So, to sum up, Dr. Plantinga has asserted, if NME were true, our minds would be unreliable, and I suggest that we can go further. If NME were true, we would not have minds at all. Thank you an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.